Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me as usual is Law360 Supreme Court reporter Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? Natalie, it's going well. We have a lot to get through today. There's been a lot of updates from the Supreme Court over the last week, um, including in a pretty fascinating oral argument that took place yesterday on Wednesday um, involving a trademark dispute that poses some interesting questions under the First Amendment. Um, we will be having a special guest, Law360's senior intellectual property reporter, Danny Cast, to come on and talk about the case, which kind of took a really bizarre turn with a lot of poop references and things that we're going to be discussing later. That's just a small teaser for you. Um, but yeah, lots lots to get through this week. The justices are continuing to release opinions at a slow, slow drip. Um, just one this week, in fact, that was handed down on Tuesday. It was a unanimous ruling that basically sided with a deaf student telling him that he could pursue his lawsuit against his school district um, for allegedly providing untrained interpreters um, over the you know several years that he went uh, through school. Um, this is a suit that's being brought for compensatory damages under the Americans with Disabilities Act, and Justice Gorsuch had the decision, as I say, for a unanimous Supreme Court. Also on Monday, we did have orders. Among those was what's known as a summary disposition in an abortion case called Chapman Vito. So in one fell swoop, essentially, the court decided and threw out a lower court decision um, without adding to, you know, its merits dockets for a full briefing and argument on this case. Um, in this instance, it sparked an interesting solo dissent, though, from the court's newest member, Justice Kataji Brown-Jackson. Yeah, so a bit of background here. Um, this is a case that centers around a pregnant minor who wanted to get what's called a judicial bypass which is a way to obtain uh, an abortion without parental consent by going to a judge, um, in this case in Missouri, to get that judge to sign off on the procedure. So um, it just so happened that when uh, this minor, this pregnant teen, attempted to begin the judicial bypass process, she was told by the Missouri State Court clerk uh, that her parents would be notified of her filing of this particular procedure. So, you know, obviously the whole point that she was doing it was to kind of avoid that uh, parental notification and parental consent. So she abandons the plan, goes to Illinois, and obtains an abortion without parental consent. Now, afterwards, she files a civil rights lawsuit against the Missouri state clerk, claiming that her constitutional right to an abortion was violated. So the the clerk in defending against the lawsuit claimed immunity under qualified immunity and as well as quasi-judicial immunity to doctrines that basically insulate, you know, court officials from being held liable for civil rights violations. Um, but on appeal to the Eighth Circuit, the Court of Appeals rejected that defense. And obviously, you know, the constitutional right to abortion as it was at the time that she had been seeking this judicial bypass was overruled in last term's Supreme Court decision in Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. So after the Supreme Court gets rid of the abortion right in that case, um, the minor, who I believe at this point was no longer a minor, uh, as well as the clerk, agreed to, they, they filed a joint stipulation essentially uh, dismissing or asking for the case to be dismissed. So after the court gets rid of this uh, constitutional abortion right in in Dobbs, um, 
the, the minor, who I believe at that point is no longer a minor, uh, jointly stipulates to the dismissal of the case along with the defendant, the clerk, um, thus kind of mooting the dispute as it's on appeal to the Supreme Court. And so this is where the court's summary decision kicks in, right? They're basically, this is moot, let's kick it out. Yes, but how it does that is where things start to get a little bit interesting. So instead of just denying cert, which was an option, of course, um, to just not agree not to cons- reconsider the Eighth Circuit's denial of immunity because the case is now moot, the Supreme Court instead goes a step further and it summarily, meaning without any kind of full briefing or argument, just in one fell swoop in a single order, it throws out the Eighth Circuit's ruling in the case and sends it back down with instructions to dismiss the case as moot. And it does so under a 72-year-old Supreme Court precedent known as United States versus Munsingware. I'm not going to lie. I don't know what this precedent is. What (laughs) is United States versus Munsingware? So over the last seven decades, Munsingware has come to stand for the proposition that if a case becomes moot while a losing party is appealing a decision, uh, this doctrine allows appellate courts like the Supreme Court to essentially erase that precedent from the book. So the basic idea is that it ensures fairness to a party that through no fault of its own can no longer appeal an unfavorable ruling because circumstances beyond that party's control have rendered the case moot. Okay, so Justice Jackson's the sole dissenter here. What is it that she's objecting to? Because it does seem like it fits the Munsingware, you know, structure here. Jackson does not exactly see it that way, and it kind of goes to her broader complaint that the Supreme Court has been too quick to grant these types of orders, this type of relief, where under Munsingware, the court is throwing out lower court precedents, just in, you know, basically ripping them up in the course of their Monday uh, Supreme Court orders list. So Justice Jackson says that Munsingware is supposed to be a rare procedural mechanism, only in, quote, exceptional cases. But she thinks that the court's been using it in like basically an increasing number of cases that do not warrant it. In particular, she emphasizes that, you know, it has to be through no fault of the party that the that's requesting the relief that the case becomes moot. In other words, um, she says here, the state court clerk stipulated to the dismissal of the lawsuit. She agreed that this case should be thrown out and mooted. So in effect... According to Justice Jackson, she contributed to the the mootness of the case. And she's basically suggesting that this relief should only be in circumstances when the requesting party had nothing to do with the mootness of the case. But I think the more interesting point is this one that she's making about a trend uh, that the Supreme Court has been uh you know, giving this kind of relief in all sorts of cases. And in fact, it's actually something that's caught the attention of some legal academics. Um, Lisa Tucker of Drexel University is a law professor that I spoke to for this piece. She's kind of examined the rise of these types of orders, uh, this Munsingware vacature orders um, that particularly shot up during the Trump administration when the Supreme Court kind of in the blink of an eye was, uh, you know, like erasing 
precedent that a lot of which were kind of precedents, rulings against the Trump administration. For instance, there was a ruling in favor of House Democrats who were challenging uh, Trump's decision to to use certain funds to fund his border wall project. That was just one of them. Um, but it's you know there's some there's some data that uh, Lisa Tucker has found to suggest that. Uh, the the incidents of Munsingware vacature, which used to be around an average of you know once per term, has suddenly shot up to about four times per term in the last uh, several terms. So this is an in- this is an issue that seems to have caught the attention of Justice Jackson, and she says um, our recent practices reflect a sharp uptick in the number of vacatures awarded. I would not add this far from exceptional case to that growing list. Well, we will keep watching this issue as it plays out, and we'll see if Justice Jackson's criticisms have any effect on her colleagues. Yeah, I think it's worth probably pointing out that, you know, this is this is Justice Jackson's, like, first real kind of stand that she's taking against, uh, you know, some of the court practices that her colleagues have been taking. We've seen some dissents from her so far, but this is her first solo dissenting opinion, um, in which she's kind of calling out the justices for like a trend that she thinks is kind of wrong-headed. Um, so maybe it's just the first of many issues where she'll be kind of vocal and speaking out and taking these uh, particular stands. And it's it's really interesting to see. Uh, now I think let's turn to oral arguments. It, the court had a full slate of arguments this week, but we're going to focus on that Wednesday argument that we talked about up top. Yeah, it's not every day that the legal sanctum of the Supreme Court is filled with the kind of pot of humor you'd be more likely to find in a grade school classroom. But Wednesday's hearing in a case called Jack Daniels versus VIP Products was not your average Supreme Court argument. So joining us to talk about this bizarre trademark case is Law 360's senior intellectual property reporter, Danny Cass. Welcome to the show, Danny. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Danny, you write in your uh, really fun write-up of yesterday, that being Wednesday's hearing in the case, that the justices really went, quote, down the rabbit hole. And having kind of listened to a few uh, minutes of this case, that definitely seems to be spot on. So before we talk about some of the underlying trademark issues here, uh, can you give us just like a little teaser of just how weird things got in the nation's most powerful courtroom yesterday? Absolutely. Uh, The case didn't seem to have a moment where everything was normal. There was a lot of laughter. There was a lot of awkward moments. Uh, we They were talking about um, bottles of urine compared to bottles of feces. <laughs> they were talking about um, drunk elephants or drunk donkeys, depending on who's asking, and uh, various things like that, which were just all a little strange that you would not expect to have at Supreme Court arguments. Yeah, no, certainly not. Um, I don't think that there's ever been kind of a lengthy back and forth over whether uh, we're discussing number one or number two um, at the Supreme Court. But that kind of piques my interest a little bit as to how the life tenure justices of the Supreme Court came to be discussing these bodily fluids and drunk elephants and, and whatnot. So what are the underlying facts of this particular case? So... The case is about a dog toy that VIP products made, which resembles a Jack Daniels bottle. It just has some of the text um, switched out to make it about poop instead of about um, whiskey. Whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, whiskey. But for Uh, the record, there is no bodily fluid in this toy. No, it is like a squeaker toy. This is a normal dog toy. (laughs) So VIP products had made this item and Jack Daniels sued them for trademark infringement because they didn't want to be associated with a bottle of poop. And 
it, it went all the way through the Ninth Circuit, where they kind of got into this place of, is this a fight over trademark infringement or is this a fight over protected speech to make things like this parody bottle? So can you tell us exactly what Jack Daniels is asking the court to decide? So Jack Daniels is asking the court to decide that this case should be decided by uh, the Lanham Act, the federal trademark law, which looks at whether consumers are likely to be confused by whether this is from Jack Daniels or not, sponsored by them, paid for by them, licensed by them. And the in finding that free speech dictated the case, the Ninth Circuit used something called the Rogers test, which makes it really hard for trademarks, um, trademark infringement to apply to uh, expressive artworks. So there's it in order to meet the Rogers test, you just have to show that something is artistically expressive and that it's not explicitly misleading. So they're kind of fighting the idea that in a case like this, the Rogers test should apply and override the Lanham Act. Well, so there seems to be some tension here between the First Amendment and trademark law, uh, where you have a uh, uh, accused infringer who's selling a toy that is supposed to be a parody of the uh, the trademarked good, in this case, a Jack Daniels bottle. And so there's some question over to what extent do they have the First Amendment right to, to kind of promote that product. So what is the argument that the uh, the maker of this toy, which I understand is called a bad Spaniels as opposed to Jack Daniels, what is their argument for why they should not be found liable for trademark infringement? So uh, VIP it has said that their product is meant to be a parody for brands that take themselves a little too seriously. So they have an entire line of things like this made with various beers, various sodas, various other products. It's not just um, bad spaniels. And their entire argument is that, you know, when companies are going to take themselves way too seriously, then we're going to make fun of it a little. Uh, And so it's sending a statement with that. And that Jack Daniels was among the most serious of the companies uh, that they were making parodies of. (laughs) So beyond the parties, though, the federal government also has kind of a, or just trying to get a a stake here. Uh, Can you tell us what the government is asking the court for? Yeah, the government's uh, position is pretty simple. They just want to get rid of the Rogers test. Um, They don't think it should apply. And so technically they're backing up Jack Daniels in the case. They shared argument time with them. But um, as Justice Gorsuch joked, because their cases kind of uh, diverge a little bit, uh, that they're not actually a friend of the court for um, for Jack Daniels, <laughs> um, even though that's like legally what they are. So what is your general sense of how the justices react to these different arguments that were being advanced? I think that they all understood that this was strange. They, they really um, went in on Jack Daniels about about how to show when when like a reasonable person would understand that something is being infringed. Like if you, you were at a store and you picked up a shirt, would you actually think this was licensed? If you saw somebody wearing something, uh, what, would you think it was licensed? And trying to figure out, like they were providing a lot of examples that made it pretty clear that like it's easy enough for people to figure stuff out and trying to find out like where that line is. So that was kind of their take on Jack Daniel's case. For VIP, they were confused about what the parody was when they just see a bottle with kind of a dog and uh, dog poop jokes on it. And VIP's attorney was saying that this is because they're making fun of companies that take themselves way too seriously, brands that take themselves too seriously. And 
the justices were kind of just more confused as to why this argument couldn't be filtered into the Lanham test and just really stressed that like parity is part of that test already and why it has to be separate. So it wasn't clear if that's what they were advocating for, but that's that's really where a lot of their questions were with him. Now, we touched earlier on how this argument session had a lot of weird hypotheticals. Um, let's talk a little bit further about some of those hypotheticals and what they tell us about how the justices are approaching the case. Yeah, so there's two examples that I think work really well together. One is Justice Alito trying to figure out how a reasonable person would approach um, the dog toy and think like, oh, yes, this is something that somebody in Jack Daniels said we should make and it was okayed. Um, and he was saying no reasonable person could imagine that conversation happening within Jack Daniels. So therefore, they don't. no one would actually think that, that Jack Daniels was selling a dog toy about poop. And so that was one of the examples was looking into into that, like um, having that discussion in like a marketing meeting, whereas Justice Sotomayor had an example where she kind of um, imagined, had everyone imagine a T-shirt with a drunken version of uh, political party animals, so an elephant or a donkey, and then had text that was saying, um, time to sober up America. And that shirt is sold on Amazon. And there, there's a consumer survey that shows like a decent, like 10, 20, 30 amount, uh, 30% of consumer confusion, meaning that people thought it was affiliated with the party. And they were trying to figure out kind of where that line was of when it's clear something is infringing versus when it's kind of on the line of being like, maybe they could have made that, maybe they didn't, who knows? Um, but in order to show that like, Sometimes it's just pretty obvious that, like, you know, Apple's not going to make a shirt that says Apple sucks on it was another thing that they used. So just the example of, you know, the the T-shirts with the slogan on it, it seems like maybe there's more at stake here than just this particular dog toy and that this could really shake things up for the, the you know, the trademark world. Um, what is your sense of the stakes of this particular case? So depending on who wins, um, if we kind of uphold the Rogers test, then I know that. Um, Jack Daniels and others, trademark holders, will be frustrated that they feel their brands aren't protectable as much, um, and that maybe the ton of the great amount of investment they put into them is not as meaningful as it should be. Um, whereas, if they were to uphold the Rogers test, or just you know not deciding it at all, uh, then it's generally seen as a win for like artistic expression and figuring out where that line is and where parody stands. I know that the entertainment industry is really reliant on this law. So, or this test. So they, they would like it to stay. So those are pretty too far apart ways, paths that the justice could take. Is there any way that the court could potentially adopt a narrow ruling to decide this issue? There can absolutely be more narrow rulings just on the specific facts of this case. At one point, um, Justice Gorsuch asked if you were to, to VIP, if we were to remand this case and just say do the Lanham Act test but put um, a lot of emphasis on parity, then the VIP's attorney was like, that would be fine, which was funny because then the justice called him out for advocating for his own loss. Um on Jack Daniels' side, their attorney was talking about how 
there could be a ruling that ends up with the court kind of adjusting the statute, adding some language, adding an exception, which is not super common. But that would be one way, she said, to get around the tension here. Danny, thank you so much for joining us today and talking about this really interesting case. Uh, it'll be, it'll, I'm curious to see how the justices resolve this one. because, And I'm also curious to read the opinion because hopefully we can get some more bizarre offbeat uh, references Absolutely. in there. Absolutely. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, Natalie. Well, that was probably one of our funner uh, discussions <laughs> uh, that we've had in a while. Um, Jimmy, I think that just about does it for us uh, today, though. Thanks, Natalie. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Danny Cass. Music for the show comes from Slenderbeats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Oh, please write us a review. <laughs>